Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is the John F. Kennedy assassination. Now, this is the second part of a two-part podcast. If you have not listened to the first half of this podcast, I would strongly recommend you do so. Okay, presuming that you have listened to it, let's go ahead with part two, analyzing the JFK assassination. Our next topic regarding the Kennedy assassination is with regard to the Warren Commission. Since Oswald was dead, there was obviously not going to be a trial. And because Ruby had killed Oswald, a lot of rumors had arisen. The new president, Lyndon Johnson, wanted a complete investigation as to what happened. He appointed the sitting Supreme Court Chief Justice, Earl Warren, to head the commission to investigate the Kennedy murder. This was done one week after the assassination, November 29, 1963. The commission worked for approximately 10 months and finally turned in its final report to President Johnson on September 24, 1964. And the Warren Commission's conclusion, Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President Kennedy and he acted alone. Okay, I'll address some of the conspiracy theories arising from the Warren Commission later on. But it amazes me that most people don't believe the Warren Commission report when they haven't even read it. I've read the entire Warren Commission report. If you go to my website, you'll find a link to the complete Warren Commission report. It's extremely thorough and well-researched, and it reads better than you might expect. Some people think that because Oswald was dead and did not go to trial, we never learned all of the facts about the assassination. But it's just the opposite. Okay, first point. The Warren Commission had far greater resources than the Dallas Police Department. Second point. We got a lot of information from Marina Oswald testifying before the Warren Commission. Had there been a criminal trial, Oswald certainly would have asserted marital privilege and prevented Marina from testifying. Instead, she provided a lot of information that we would not have known otherwise. The next topic involves the Zapruder film. Abraham Zapruder was a Dallas dressmaker, and at the time of the assassination, he filmed the motorcade with his home movie camera. That film has been analyzed in excruciating detail. As I previously said, the two main factors why people believe in conspiracy theories in this case, number one, the fact that Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby two days after the assassination, and number two, the Zapruder film showing JFK's head snapping back and to the left at the time of the third and fatal shot. Conspiracy lovers claim that the movement of Kennedy's head back and to the left shows that the fatal headshot did not come from behind where Oswald was located in the Texas School Book Depository, but came from the front right of the motorcade from that area named the Grassy Knoll. By the way, that term, everybody uses it. It all came about because of a reporter describing it as a grassy knoll on the day of the assassination. Anyway, people claim that the second gunman was located in the grassy knoll and shot Kennedy 
in the front right portion of his head, and therefore there was a conspiracy. This is not true for several reasons. First reason, a gunshot does not send people flying in the opposite direction like you see in the movies. We're used to seeing this. TV, movies, person gets shot and they go flying backwards. That's not how it acts in real life. Here are a couple of examples. When Ruby shoots Oswald, it was on live TV. You've probably seen this. You could easily find it on YouTube. Oswald lets out a loud groan and collapses, but he doesn't go flying backwards. Here's another example you've probably seen and you can easily find on YouTube. When John Hinckley shot President Reagan on March 30, 1981, Reagan barely moves when he gets hit. Here's an even better example with an actual headshot. A lot of you have probably seen the iconic photo and video taken on February 1, 1968, when the chief of the National Police in South Vietnam shot a Viet Cong prisoner in the head on the streets of Saigon. It's, it's gruesome. But as you can see from that video, there's not a violent head snap like you see by JFK in the Zapruder film. Why is this? Well, it's because of physics. A bullet weighs about a third of an ounce. A human head weighs generally between 10 to 14 pounds. So even though the bullet's traveling at 2,000 feet per second, the bullet has so little mass compared to its target that it doesn't move it that much. Another reason why the head does not move very much is because of the neck muscles holding the head in place. So what caused the head to jerk back and to the left? Well, the House Select Committee on Assassinations and most experts agree that it was a neuromuscular reaction. A large portion of Kennedy's brain was destroyed in an instant, and that caused this neuromuscular reaction. In addition, there's the propulsive effect resulting from this large amount of brain matter, which is exiting through a large hole in the front right portion of the head. It's propelling the head backwards and to the left. Now, this is not to say that a bullet would not have caused Kennedy's head to move at all. Experts determined that this type of a gunshot should have moved Kennedy's head a couple of inches. And actually, that is what occurred, which I'll address in a little bit. So if we discount the back and to the left head snap, how do we determine where the headshot came from? Well, this brings us to the second reason, medical evidence. The medical evidence shows that the shot came from the rear. The Zapruder film clearly shows that there was only one head shot. Pathologists are able to determine whether a wound is an entrance wound or an exit wound, meaning whether the bullet was entering the body or exiting the body. There are many ways they do this. Entrance wounds are usually small and round, Exit wounds are usually larger and asymmetrical because the bullet has passed through the body and is not on a perfect trajectory anymore. Also, the beveling of the bones shows which direction the bullet was traveling. The medical evidence clearly shows an entrance wound in the back of Kennedy's head. So, since there was only one gunshot, if he was shot from the front right, 
like from the grassy knoll, where did this entrance wound in the back of the head come from? Okay, third reason why there's no evidence of a shot from the front right. Photographic evidence. The photographic evidence shows that at the time of the headshot, the blood and the brain matter are flying out of the front right portion of Kennedy's head. This is what any expert would expect of a shot from the rear that was exiting the front right portion of the head. Enhancements of the Zapruder film show that Kennedy's head actually moved 2.3 inches forward when struck from the rear of his head before the violent neuromuscular reaction which made his head snap back and to the left. In short, the photographic evidence shows that the headshot came from the rear. Okay, fourth reason why we know that there was no shot from the grassy knoll. If JFK was shot from the front right, like from the grassy knoll as claimed by the conspiracy people, why is there no damage to the left hemisphere of his brain? The right hemisphere of his brain was completely destroyed because the shot through the back of the head exited the front right portion of the skull. But if he was shot from the front right, the bullet would have traveled through the left hemisphere of his brain. Yet there's no damage there. Now this is a problem with the conspiracy people. They point out something odd, like the head snapping back into the left, but they don't follow it up. That if he was shot from the front right, where did the bullet go? The conspiracy people never try to explain that. They just point at his head snapping back into the left and say, see, he got shot from the front right. But again, there's no evidence of the bullet going anywhere because there's no damage to the left hemisphere of the brain. The fact that there's no damage to the left hemisphere of the brain demonstrates that Kennedy was not shot from the front right. So there was no headshot from the grassy knoll. Our next topic is whether there was any acoustic evidence of a second gunman, presumably at the grassy knoll. In 1976, the U.S. House of Representatives established the House Select Committee on Assassinations. You can find all their materials by Googling it from the National Archives, or you can get it from my website. The House Select Committee made the following findings. Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots at President Kennedy from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, and two of those shots hit the president, killing him. In December 1978, the House Select Committee was wrapping up their investigations. They had even prepared a draft report essentially saying that the Warren Commission was right about everything. However, at the last minute, the committee was presented with acoustic evidence that supposedly showed there were more than three shots in Dealey Plaza on that day. Obviously, if there were more than three shots, then there was a conspiracy and a second gunman was involved. The problem is this acoustic analysis has been completely discredited and no historians or even serious conspiracy people believe in this supposed evidence. So what was the purported evidence? There was a dictabelt recording from the day of the assassination. All audio over the Dallas police channels were recorded on a device called a dictabelt. Police officers would turn their microphones on and off when they needed to speak. However, an unidentified police officer had his microphone stuck in the on position 
on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. An acoustic analysis firm claimed that the Dictabelt demonstrated noises which this firm claimed were gunshots. Based upon this analysis, the House Select Committee altered the draft of the report and stated that all of the evidence I mentioned earlier about Lee Harvey Oswald shooting JFK was still true, but that there was evidence of a fourth shot from the grassy knoll and therefore a second gunman and therefore a conspiracy. These findings were in trouble from the start. Let's analyze the ear witnesses. There were 178 ear witnesses to the assassination. Only four, you heard me, four, thought shots were heard from both the Texas School Book Depository as well as the Grassy Knoll. Of those 178 ear witnesses, 75 to 79% stated that they heard three shots. Only 3.5% of the ear witnesses stated that they heard four shots. The remaining witnesses claimed other numbers of shots. Not everybody on the House Select Committee agreed with this analysis of a fourth shot and a second gunman. That is why the House Select Committee report states that it was not unanimous. To give credit to the House Select Committee, they recommended that the Justice Department review their findings and check out this acoustic analysis. In 1979, the Justice Department did so. They had the FBI look into it. The FBI's Technical Services Division analyzed the Dictabelt recording and determined that the acoustic analysis firm utilized by the House Select Committee was mistaken and there was no proof of a fourth shot. The FBI's Technical Services Division came to the conclusion that there was no evidence of a fourth shot and no evidence that the recording was even made from a microphone located in Dealey Plaza. In short, the FBI concluded that the analysis used by the House Select Committee was completely invalid. After the FBI made their conclusions and ruled that the acoustic evidence did not support the conclusion of a second gunman and a fourth shot, the Justice Department paid for a review by the National Academy of Sciences an organization operating with a Title 36 congressional charter. The Committee on Ballistic Acoustics from the National Academy of Sciences did an analysis of the Dictabelt recording. You can find this by Googling it, or you can just go to my website and get their analysis. Their findings were as follows. The acoustic analyses do not demonstrate that there was a grassy knoll shot. The acoustic impulses that were supposedly gunshots were recorded about one minute after Kennedy had been shot and the motorcade had left Dealey Plaza. Therefore, there was no reliable acoustic data to support a conclusion that there was a second gunman. Both the FBI and the National Academy of Sciences realized that the police officer's microphone, which was stuck in the on position, could not have been located in Dealey Plaza. That unknown police officer was located someplace else in Dallas, and so therefore, this recording was meaningless. The House Select Committee made its critical mistake by determining that the microphone that was stuck in the on position was the microphone belonging to motorcycle officer 
H.B. McLean. Photographic and video evidence shows that Officer McLean was in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. However, Officer McLean was adamant that the recording was not from his microphone. It's not that he claims he couldn't have made a mistake and left his microphone open. He pointed out that the sounds don't relate to the sounds that he was hearing on that date. One of the things he pointed out was the fact that the motorcycle engine that's heard on the Dick DeBelt recording is that of the smaller engine on the three-wheeled motorcycles and not his high-performance Harley-Davidson, which makes a much more distinct sound. Experts who have listened to the Dick DeBelt recording agree with Officer McLean on this point. Another reason why the Dick DeBelt recording could not have been made from a microphone on Officer McLean is that you don't hear his police siren. Once the Secret Service and the police realized that Kennedy had been shot, Officer McLean and all the other police officers on motorcycles turned on their sirens as they escorted the presidential limousine to Parkland Hospital. Now, on the Dictabelt recording, there is one part where you can hear a police siren, but it is growing louder and then growing fainter, indicating that the siren was passing the open microphone. So obviously it could not have been Officer McLean's microphone since his siren was on the entire time from the shooting until they arrived at Parkland Hospital. Point number three, the sound of the motorcycle engine is steady on the Dictabelt recording. This indicates a steady rate of speed. However, Officer McLean immediately revved up his motorcycle when the gunshots were heard and went from going 11 miles per hour, the speed of the motorcade, to about 80 miles an hour as they escorted the presidential limousine to Parkland Hospital. Point number four regarding this Dictabelt recording. There's no crowd noise. The presidential motorcade, including... Officer McLean passed through large crowds along Main Street and in Dealey Plaza. Crowd noise should have been present, but you can't hear any on the Dictabelt recording. Point number five. The Dictabelt recording has somebody whistling a tune about a minute after the assassination. Now, the presumption is that anybody who was speeding the slain president to the nearest hospital would not be calmly whistling a tune, again, indicating that this recording was not from Officer McLean's microphone. Now, here's the craziest thing about the Dick Belt recording. In the summer of 1979, a men's magazine, meaning a magazine with naked women, named Gallery, included a thin plastic tear-out, which was a three-minute recording of excerpts from transmissions from the Dallas police on November 22, 1963. Yes, this was a record that needed to be played on a turntable. It was 1979. A 24-year-old musician named Steve Barber bought that issue of Gallery Magazine and listened to the record. Steve Barber noticed something that the acoustic analysis firm for the House Select Committee did not. As Steve Barber reported in an interview, you can faintly hear a voice saying, Hold everything secure until the homicide and other investigators can get there. Well, this was considered by the FBI and the National Academy of Sciences. 
and they determined that that voice was from Dallas Sheriff Bill Decker, who said those words a minute after the Kennedy assassination. Since the noises, which were purportedly gunshots, were heard on the Dick Belt recording at about that same time, since this was a minute after the assassination, those noises could not have been gunshots. All experts now agree that the microphone which was recorded at the time of the assassination was located in another part of Dallas and not in Dealey Plaza. Therefore, the recording could not have captured any gunshots aimed at the president. By the way, the human ear cannot hear gunshots on this dictabout recording. Even with the greatest enhancements of sound, the House Select Committee acoustic analysis firm found that there were, quote, impulse patterns, close quote, on the recording, which they determined to be gunshots. They don't sound like gunshots, and for all the reasons I just laid out, clearly that recording did not have any gunshots on it. In short, I'm not aware of any credible source which still cites the December 1978 findings from the House Select Committee regarding a fourth shot and a grassy knoll gunman. This acoustic analysis theory is dead. Another argument brought forth by the conspiracy people is that Oswald could not have made those shots. This was probably the biggest lie perpetrated by the conspiracy nuts. Nobody has been able to duplicate what Oswald supposedly did. This is an out-and-out lie. We know through the use of the Zapruder film that there were 8.4 seconds between the first and last shots. People question the speed of operating a bolt-action rifle and getting off three aim shots. First point is you have to realize that the little over eight seconds is just for the second and third shots. The first bullet is already chambered, so it only requires the split second of pulling the trigger. The Warren Commission had three marksmen use Oswald's actual rifle and were able to duplicate those shots in under six seconds. Because of people questioning this marksmanship, CBS News created a demonstration in 1967, which they broadcast. You can find it on YouTube by just typing in 1967 CBS News JFK shooting. Or you can find the link on my website. CBS set up a tower, which was the same height as the window in the Texas School Book Depository, and had a track built with a vehicle with an FBI target showing a silhouette of a man. The target was moving at 11 miles per hour, which was the speed of the presidential motorcade. Although the CBS people did not have access to Oswald's actual rifle, they used a similar rifle, which was the same age and make, a 1940 Manlicker Carcano 6.5 millimeter Italian rifle. 11 marksmen tried this and averaged three shots between five and six seconds. One of those marksmen hit two targets in under six seconds, and one hit three targets in under six seconds. So this is much shorter, two full seconds, than Oswald had. Also, Oswald practiced with this rifle a lot. Marina testified that he used to go to the shooting range with that rifle and practice often. Another thing to consider, Oswald qualified as a sharpshooter in the Marines. In the Marines, the scale goes marksman, sharpshooter, expert. 
And this was shooting at a target 200 yards away, much farther than the shots in Dealey Plaza. The shot that hit Kennedy's back and exited through the neck was only 59 yards from the Texas School Book Depository, and the headshot was only 88 yards. Gun experts will tell you this is not a difficult shot, especially when you have a scope like Oswald had. He had a four magnification scope, meaning that the images, as you look through the scope, appear to be four times closer. In short, these two shots were not very hard, especially for somebody of Oswald's skills. Let's go on to a new topic. One of the big conspiracy issues is the so-called magic bullet. The Warren Commission and the House Select Committee both found that there were three shots. The first shot missed. Most likely, it hit a branch of the oak tree that was blocking Oswald's view at the time of the first shot. The second shot went through the upper back of JFK and out through his neck and then hit Connolly. The bullet went through Connolly's chest and then his wrist and finally landed in his leg. The conspiracy people claim that the only way for one bullet to hit both JFK and Governor Connolly was if the bullet made a right angle turn in midair. That's based upon the erroneous drawings that show the locations of Connolly compared to Kennedy. The photographic evidence shows that there was actually a straight line between JFK and Governor Connolly. As I explained earlier, Connolly was sitting in a jump seat which was lower and to the left of JFK. This made for a straight line of fire for that second shot to exit Kennedy's neck and then hit Connolly. All credible experts agree that this one bullet went through both men causing their injuries. This is another situation of the conspiracy people pointing out something odd or unusual but not following it to its conclusion. If the bullet that exited Kennedy's neck did not hit Connolly, where did it go? The trajectory of the bullet, as evidenced by the entrance wound in Kennedy's back and the exit wound in his neck, shows that the bullet would have to have hit Governor Connolly. Also, if it wasn't the same bullet, how did Connolly get hit without a bullet first hitting JFK? The entrance wounds hitting Connolly show that the bullet came from the rear meaning the Texas School Book Depository, a bullet hitting the governor would have to have hit Kennedy first. There were only two shots that hit JFK, the second shot, which exited his neck, and the third shot, which struck his head. Nobody claims that the third shot, the head shot, hit anybody else in the car. This is very clear from the photographic evidence, and the trajectory was different because Kennedy was further from the... Texas School Book Depository at the time of that shot, and so the angle was different, and so the shot did not hit Connolly or anybody else in the car. This bullet that went through both JFK and Connolly was found on the stretcher where Connolly had been placed at Parkland Hospital. Conspiracy people claim that the bullet was in pristine condition. Look, a bullet is either pristine or not. It's like being pregnant. You can't be a little pregnant. You're either pregnant or not. Either it's pristine or it's not. This bullet was not in pristine condition. Admittedly, it was in fairly good condition. 
but experts have determined that a bullet going through two bodies like this could have come out in the same shape and with the same loss of mass. Possibly my favorite conspiracy theory in everything to do with JFK is that the so-called magic bullet was placed on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital. They claim that is why the bullet is in such good shape. And once more, we have to point out that the conspiracy people don't follow through on their arguments. If conspirators placed the bullet on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital so that it would be found to supposedly prove that all the shots came from Oswald's gun, placing the bullet on the stretcher would be a terrible idea. According to the conspiracy people, the dark forces behind the JFK assassination were trying to hide the fact that the second shooter, the real killer, was positioned on the grassy knoll. Adding a bullet to the scenario by simply placing it on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital might expose the conspiracy. How would the conspirators know that the three bullets had not already been found in Dealey Plaza or in the presidential limousine or in Kennedy or Connolly's bodies? Wouldn't they be worried that the real bullets would be found and that this extra bullet, the one that they placed on the stretcher, would destroy their three shots theory if the first three bullets were found and now the conspirators placed this fourth bullet on the stretcher that would be four bullets that would expose their conspiracy again the conspiracy people do not follow through their arguments to their logical conclusions let's examine another big claim by the conspiracy people they allege that the Warren Commission sealed all of their evidence for 75 years. That is not true. Earl Warren, the head of the commission, wanted all of the exhibits available to the American people. However, all of the exhibits, means documents, photographs, testimonial evidence, was turned over to the National Archives. The National Archives had an automatic rule that when they received any exhibits, as a result of a federal investigation that those items would not be available to the general public for 75 years. The idea was primarily privacy concerns with the belief that after 75 years, all persons involved in that particular investigation would be dead. This applied to all evidence and exhibits received by the National Archives from any federal agency not just the Warren Commission. Second point, starting in 1992, the federal government made exceptions and allowed the release of the JFK assassination records. As of 2022, 99.9% of all of the records are now available to the public. There are a few that are redacted and withheld from the general public due to security reasons. You can go online and review these documents at the National Archives website. Third point, although practically all of the documents have been released by this time, no smoking gun has ever been discovered which reveals a conspiracy or any evidence contradicting the findings of the Warren Commission. Now let's think about this. If the Warren Commission or whatever sinister government forces decided to hide the truth from the American public, about what really happened in the Kennedy assassination. Do you really think they would simply give all of the evidence to the National Archives so that some point in the 21st century, 
people would be able to see the evidence of their high crimes. Instead of simply destroying the evidence, they preserved the evidence and turned it over to the National Archives. Does anybody really believe that? Let's talk motive. Conspiracy people like to point at certain groups that they think killed Kennedy and explain that those groups had a motive to kill him. One of the groups they like to focus on, the mafia. Why? Well, JFK's attorney general was his brother Bobby, and he was prosecuting the mafia big time. Conspiracy people also like to point at the CIA, who was supposedly upset with JFK for not providing air support or other backing for the CIA-sponsored Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. Some conspiracy people say that it was the anti-Castro Cubans who wanted to kill Kennedy for the same reasons as the CIA, the failure to overthrow Castro. Others say it was the exact opposite, that it was Fidel Castro who killed JFK because the CIA was trying to kill Castro. Other conspiracy people claim that it was the Soviets. After all, this was the height of the Cold War and only one year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Once again, the conspiracy people point at something suspicious without following it through to its conclusion. Just because somebody has a motive doesn't mean that they did it. Think about this. Somebody in your town is murdered, and the police come to you and point out that, hey, the deceased was having an affair with your significant other, and also the deceased had cheated you in a business deal. It would be understandable that you would be a suspect. However, to be convicted, there has to be evidence that you actually did it, not just that you had a motive. Same thing here. You can take any president at any time and find lots of groups or individuals who would have a motive to kill that particular president. But motive is meaningless if there's no evidence that that particular person did kill the president. Okay, another issue regarding motive. Why did Oswald or Ruby do it? We'll never know the exact reasons why Oswald shot Kennedy or Ruby shot Oswald. Some people just want to be a part of history. It seems too simple to say that Oswald and Ruby were both completely unstable characters, and that's what this comes down to. It amazes me when people try so hard to figure out what Oswald's motive was. Who knows? Who cares? It was something psychotic. People's motives often don't make sense. The best example is another presidential assassination attempt. March 30, 1981, John Hinckley shot Ronald Reagan. What was his motive? He wanted to impress the actress Jodie Foster. It's crazy, but it's true. We know because Hinckley wrote a note to Jodie Foster explaining his motive. For some reason, nobody thinks there was a giant conspiracy in the attempted assassination of Reagan. Oh, there's no way anybody would try to assassinate a president to impress an actress. We just accept it because you're dealing with a psychotic individual. You don't have to limit this to presidential assassinations. Look at the other insane people who kill for no particular reason. On May 24, 2022, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos took two assault rifles into Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas and killed 19 grade schoolers and two teachers. On October 1, 2017, Stephen Paddock fired more than 1,000 rounds from his hotel room at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas into a large crowd of people at a concert on the Las Vegas Strip, killing 60 people and wounding 867 others. 
the fact that we can't make sense out of the motives of people like Salvador Ramos or Stephen Paddock doesn't mean that there was any dark conspiracy or something unknown. Motive is not important. What is important is the evidence that a particular person committed a particular murder. Let's examine the evidence against Oswald. As explained earlier, there is no evidence that anybody else shot President Kennedy. But there's a lot of evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald. Number one, as I outlined earlier, the evidence shows that Kennedy was hit with two shots fired from behind. Number two, evidence shows that the two shots which struck Kennedy were fired from the sixth floor window on the southeast corner of the Texas School Book Depository Building. As determined by the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee, the trajectory analysis proved that the shots came from Oswald's location. The video taken by Charles Bronson, no, not that Charles Bronson, a spectator who happened to be in Dealey Plaza that day, just before the shooting, shows a figure in the sixth floor window. And witness Howard Brennan saw the man fire the shots and described that person to the Dallas police, which led to the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald. Number three, a rifle was the murder weapon. A 6.5 millimeter Manlicker Carcano 1940 Italian rifle was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The FBI in 1963 and the House Select Committee in 1978 were both able to prove by ballistics that the bullet found on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital had been fired from that gun found on the sixth floor. Now, the bullet from the first shot, which missed everybody, was never found. The bullet from the third shot, the headshot, exploded into too many pieces to be tested for ballistics. However, using neutron activation analysis, the House Select Committee was able to demonstrate that the wounds suffered by Kennedy and Connolly were likely caused by the bullet found on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital. And the bullet fragments taken from Kennedy's brain were also likely from this rifle. They were able to link the materials found in Kennedy's and Connolly's bodies as being likely from the bullets shot from the gun found on the sixth floor. Number four, we know that Oswald owned the gun. Oswald ordered that rifle through the mail from a sporting goods store in Chicago. Handwriting analysis shows that it was Oswald handwriting on the order form. Also, the rifle was shipped to Oswald's P.O. box. And there are two famous photographs of Oswald posing with that rifle and his pistol in his backyard. His wife Marina testified that she took those photographs and contrary to claims by conspiracy enthusiasts, those photographs of Oswald with his rifle and pistol are genuine and have not been altered. Number five, the shell casings. There were three shell casings found at the southeast window on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Ballistics show that the shell casings were from Oswald's rifle. Number six, fingerprints and palm prints. Oswald's fingerprints and palm prints were found on boxes at the sniper's nest at the southeast window of the sixth floor. His fingerprints and palm prints were also found on the rifle found on the sixth floor. And the paper sack, which Oswald had used to carry the rifle into the Texas School Book Depository that morning, was found at the sniper's nest and a palm print and fingerprint 
were both identified as belonging to Oswald. Number seven, a co-worker saw Oswald on the sixth floor shortly before the assassination. Number eight, Oswald was the only employee to flee the Texas School Book Depository after his assassination. His actions were of a person fleeing a crime. And some of his other actions also lead to the suspicion that he did it. On the morning of the assassination, when he left Marina at Ruth Payne's house in Irving, Texas, Oswald left Marina almost all of the money he had. Even more telling, he left his wedding ring on the dresser that morning when he left Marina. Obviously, he did not expect to be coming back. And probably the most telling of all, that he shot a police officer. That brings us to number nine, Oswald shooting police officer J.D. Tippett shortly after the Kennedy assassination. There's lots of evidence of him doing this. Three witnesses actually saw him shoot Officer Tippett. Two others saw him immediately after as he walked across their lawn from the scene of the shooting he was replacing the bullets in his gun. Even more telling, he's caught with that particular gun in the movie theater, and ballistics show that this was the gun that killed Officer Tippett. Now, does killing Tippett show that Oswald killed Kennedy? No, but it shows the capacity to commit murder and is consistent with a person guilty of murdering the president and being caught in the act of fleeing. You've probably heard of Occam's Razor. That the best explanation of any phenomenon is the one that makes the fewest assumptions. The simplest explanation is usually right. That's the case here. All of this evidence points towards Oswald being the murderer. And there's no evidence pointing towards anybody else being involved. The idea of a conspiracy in this case is ludicrous on its face. First issue, Oswald would never be selected as an assassin by conspirators. There's no evidence that Oswald had any connection with any of those groups that supposedly were behind the assassination, the CIA, the mafia, etc. This issue was investigated by the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee, as well as so many conspiracy theorists. There's no credible evidence linking Oswald to any of those groups. And let's consider the idea that anybody would use Oswald as an assassin. He's the last person that somebody would hire. He was completely unstable, going back and forth to Russia, could never hold down a job. Other than his marksmanship abilities, he did not have any of the characteristics a professional assassin would have. And if somebody had hand-selected Oswald as their assassin, after he shot Kennedy, you think they would just leave him wandering around Dallas? They would have picked him up to either help him escape or to kill him and silence him. They would not have left him with no means of escape with only $13 on him. This guy didn't even have a driver's license and didn't even know how to drive. There was no way he was going to get away. It was pure coincidence that happened to put Oswald in a building overlooking the presidential motorcade. And remember, that motorcade route was not decided until November 18th and not publicized in the newspapers until November 19th three days before the assassination. All right, second issue showing the ridiculous nature of the supposed conspiracy. The location of the murder. If this was truly a palace coup, why would the conspirators shoot Kennedy in such a public place like Dealey Plaza? There were somewhere between 400 to 500 
eyewitnesses to the assassination. Considering this was a presidential motorcade, by definition, there were going to be hundreds of witnesses. So why would they pick this place? Wouldn't it have been safer to kill Kennedy in some location where there were not going to be all these witnesses? And forget about the eyewitnesses. Look at the photographic evidence. Everybody's aware of these Zapruder film, but there were eight other people that we know of that were filming in Dealey Plaza that day. And three of them, in addition to Zapruder, filmed part of the assassination. That was Orville Nix, Charles Bronson, and Marie Muchmore. Immediately after the shooting, several news reporters got out their video cameras and filmed the chaos in Dealey Plaza. In addition to the movie cameras, there were dozens of people taking still photographs in Dealey Plaza. So we to believe that the assassins were so professional that they were able to cover up their involvement for almost 60 years now, but they would have picked a location with this amount of photographic and video evidence. Did these conspirators just rely on luck that there would be no photos or videos showing the second gunman at the grassy knoll? If that's the case, they were indeed incredibly lucky. All right, third issue showing how ludicrous the conspiracy theory is. According to the conspiracy enthusiasts, the assassins got the following people and groups to engage in a cover-up of what really happened that day in Dealey Plaza. The Warren Commission, the FBI, the Dallas Police Department, the Secret Service, yeah, guys willing to sacrifice their lives to save a president, the doctors and full medical staff at Parkland Hospital who treated JFK, and the doctors and medical staff at Bethesda Naval Medical Center who performed the autopsy. And every presidential administration since the mid-1960s has also been involved in covering up the truth. Hundreds of people have collaborated to cover up the truth. And yet, in almost 60 years, none of them have broken their silence. Not one person decided to cash in on the incredible money they can make by exposing the biggest conspiracy and crime of the 20th century. And consider this. All of those hundreds of people who covered up the truth, they were willing to risk major jail time as being accessories after the fact to a murder. And these groups did not have a lot in common. The Warren Commission was composed of senators and representatives from both the Republican and Democratic parties and people with extremely different political views. One of the members was Gerald Ford, who at the time was a representative from Michigan. He gave this great quote, The thought that Earl Warren and I would conspire on anything is preposterous. But according to the conspiracy nuts, all of these disparate people all agreed to risk not only their reputations, but actually jail time to cover up a heinous crime and to frame Oswald. What sane person truly believes that? Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. If listening on a podcast site like Apple Podcasts, which allows for ratings and reviews, I would appreciate both. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers, Word of mouth would be greatly appreciated. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com. You can find all of my podcasts on there, as well as other goodies like This Date in History, my book recommendations, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next episode.